privilege. If you don't think about it, a pastor has very few Sundays. This year we have actually 20, uh, 53, but he has to share the pulpit with Nathan. We have an associate coming, so thank you very much. This is a privilege for me. Hopefully it's a privilege for you guys too. We'll see. Perhaps you're wondering about my choice of attire. No, I did not get up late and I didn't have time to get out of my pajamas. That's not what's going on here. Rather, when we left Norwood to go to Africa in 2002, we were sent out. This church was almost completely white. It was. And in the last five years, God has been bringing the nations to join our church. We have people from the U.S. now, and Central and South America. We've had the Caribbean represented for a while. Now we have Africa. We've had Europe for a while. We have East, South, and West Asia. Um, in fact, if you've been born anywhere outside of Canada, could you just stand? Just, if you weren't born in Canada, just please stand. You know, everyone, if you weren't born outside of Canada, please stand up. You know, no, yes, Sam, you too, stand, it's good. You start looking around. Is that a third of us almost? And so I'm wearing this because I was talking to an African friend and he said, I'll wear mine if you wear yours. So here we are. <laughs> Actually, don't sit down. I want the rest of you to stand up. Let's, let's pray to God as we stand before we open the word. So everyone, please stand, all of us. Let's pray to God. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. A new day, a new year. But the exact day you want us to be here at Norwood. And we pray that as we look into your word, that we would be amazed at who you are, and we would be committed to love you, that our lives would be a, a thanksgiving offering to you. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. It's a new year, and it is common for us to think about New Year's resolutions. What will we do in 2023? And I'd like to challenge you with this question. What will your path be? What do you wanna focus on? What will you do? Who will you live for in 2023? We, we were always on a path. We're always making decisions. Every one of us, decides what we will aim for, what will be important to us, what do we want to focus on, what do we want to accomplish in this new year? And I thought, it's a good question, what should we focus on? And if we open the Bible to the book of Joshua, to the 24th chapter, if you turn to Joshua 24, we will find that at a moment in time, in history, as Joshua was coming to the end of his life, he was 110 or so when he wrote this chapter, it was a time of transition. The people of Israel, they'd come out of Egypt, they'd been through the wilderness, they'd come into the promised land, they had received this land by God's grace, and now the leaders were getting ready to die. And new leaders needed to come along. And just like for us, a new year is a time, a small time of change. For them, they were coming to a big time of change. And God led Joshua to give God's people a challenge. 
advice for how to transition. And as we go into a new year, I'd like to share with you what God had Joshua share with his people so that as we transition to a new year, we can do so with a godly focus, that we can choose a path that is pleasing to God. So as we open this, you'll see a couple notes up there. As Joshua's life is ending, he wants to challenge the people. He wants to direct them to look to God. Sometimes, to our shame, as we plan what we're going to do and what our goals are and what we want to accomplish, sometimes God's ideas of what we should accomplish are not our first thought. But Joshua's going to focus the people on God, and I want to do the same with us this morning. So how is this chapter organized? We're only going to look at the first 28 verses. So here's how it breaks down. Verses 1 through 13. It's the next slide now. Verses 1 to 13. Joshua will cause the people to look back at God's faithfulness. He's going to look in the rearview. He's going to see what God did for our people in the far past and what he's done for us in our own days. Then verses 14 to 18, he's going to talk about now. What are we going to do now? In light of what God has done for us, what will we decide to do today? Then 19 to 25, he gives a challenge. You have to be careful, though. You can't flippantly choose to serve God because God is a holy God. He is a jealous God. If you don't make sincere choices now, you could have terrible trouble from God because he doesn't take flippancy well. He is a holy God. And then he concludes verses 26 to 28 with a reminder. Something that we can remember like a witness to help us keep our commitment. So this is what we're going to work through this morning. Let's look at verses 1 to 13. And as Joshua focuses back on what God has done, he's going to look into four basic areas. Verses 2 to 4, he's going to look at how God made the people of Israel. So let's read those verses first. Verses 2 to 4. Well, I'll read verse 1 as well, which introduces this whole passage. Verse 1 says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And now Joshua's going to give this, this long speech. That's the rest of our passage. Verses 2 to 4. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. By the way, that's not a good thing. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. Verse 4, to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. That's the first, the first picture, looking back to the far past. And we can easily read over this and miss the point. What's he talking about here? Yeah, I know Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Yeah, so what? 
Well, guys, stop for a second. Go back into the passages for a second. Think about what God had to do. First of all, it's very clear in verse one that Abraham's dad and probably Abraham too worshiped other gods. God did not call Abraham because he was already a godly man walking with God like Job was. God had mercy to draw this man out of paganism to him. That's what actually seems to happen. The whole God choosing the people of Israel, God choosing Abraham starts with God being amazingly gracious. And the fact that Joshua talks about how Terah was worshiping other gods should draw us to think, look at how gracious God was. This was not earned. This was God's grace and mercy. He doesn't just stop there though. He talks about how God gave Abraham Isaac. And in case we have forgotten, Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. She was barren. And when she's 65, when Abraham's 75, God says, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a son. And a, a few years later, when she's now 89 and he's now 99, God says, it's coming, Sarah's gonna have a child. It's like, why did you wait so long? It's impossible. God waited until it was absolutely impossible. And that's when Isaac was conceived and born. God did this. The people of Israel were very aware. We only exist because of God choosing Abraham and then God giving him a son. And not just that, the, the little phrase in verse, verse four, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Well, it should be Esau and Jacob because Esau's the firstborn. But God said, before they were born, so that his electing purposes could be fulfilled, that Jacob he loved and Esau he hated. God said, before they were born, the older will serve the younger. This was God who caused Jacob to be the one to receive the promises. And so Jacob's children and descendants, the Israelites, they are only God's people because God chose Abraham when he was a pagan, gave him a son, Isaac, when it was impossible, and chose their great-granddad, Jacob, instead of his older brother. Now, we could just jump over this stuff, but do you see, God in the far past was very good to us, the people of Israel should say. Let's go on to the second part of this first point. Not only was God gracious in making us a people, look what he's done, and now we're going to start moving into things that were in Joshua's time frame. So the rest of verse 4 and verse 5, we're going to focus on how God protected and he saved Israel. He saved Israel in two ways. He saved Israel by taking them to Egypt, and he saved Israel by taking them out of Egypt. Verse four, the end of verse four. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, verse five, I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them and afterward I brought you out. Do you remember why Israel went to Egypt? There was a famine. There was no food. Joshua at the end of his life said, God sent me ahead of you to prepare a place for you, 
to prepare food for you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph was very aware of what Joshua is now saying. We went to Egypt as a salvation. God saved us by bringing us to Egypt. 430 years later, things have changed. Now it's not a blessing to be in Egypt. Now it's a curse to be in Egypt. Now there are slaves in Egypt. And now, as we see in verse 5, God saves them by taking them out of slavery. God saved them. God saved them by taking them to Egypt. God saved them by taking them out of Egypt. In both cases, God was working. God was powerful. And they need to look back and see how good God was. Look what verse 5 says. And I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. God did 10 powerful judgments. And Pharaoh said no. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And Pharaoh said no. Until finally, firstborn son in every home was dead. And the Egyptians finally understood that there is no God but the true God. And in fact, they said, as they were burying their firstborn sons, we are all dead men. We can't stop God. He could take all our life, all our breath. We could all die. We have to let them go. They finally understood who God was. So Joseph, Joshua is causing the people to look back. He, he was gracious in making us a people. He was gracious in saving us with and from Egypt. Let's look at verses 6, 7. He's going to save us in what we just saw, in the Red Sea. He's going to protect us through the Red Sea. He's going to protect us as we go through the wilderness. So let me read these verses. Verse 6 and 7. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. Your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. So that first point, we just saw the video. That kind of keeps it fresh in your head. Israel had no chance. This was a mighty army. They had soldiers with swords. They had men in chariots. Israel was a ragtag bunch of people. They weren't trained. They didn't, didn't even have weapons. But God protected. It was absolutely impossible, except God. Humanly speaking, it could not be they were dead, but, but no, they weren't, because God, he protected his people. And then they jump over the 40 years. When we think of Israel in the 40 years, that last line there in verse 7, you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. We normally think of the wilderness as a punishment, and, and it was. The first generation refused to go in, so they were punished. They had to wander in the wilderness till they all died. But what we often forget is the other half of it. The younger generation, every day, God provided manna. What, what is this little white stuff? Every day, God provided them food in the wilderness, in the desert where there was no food. But God can protect his people. 
He protected us, Israel must say. And one of the Psalms talks about how their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. Now you try wearing clothes for 40 years. I mean, A, they may not still fit. But even if they did, even if they did, they'd wear out. About 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, my wife finally got rid of my last high school clothes. You know, they were just, they were wearing out. They had to go. Uh, just clothes don't last more than 20 years. I've, I've tried it. It doesn't work. 40 years in a rough environment where the sun is beating down and eating the fabric, not going to happen. But, but in this case, it did. Why? Because God was protecting his people. The final image we're going to look at, verses 8 to 13. Looking back, what was the final thing? This is the immediate thing that they've just lived through. God brought us into this land. So we're going to look at verses 8 to 10 and then 11 to 13. There's two parts. The first three verses look especially at what we call Cisjordan. This is the part on the east side of the Jordan. That's where the Moabites and the Ammonites were. And then 11 to 13 will focus on crossing the Jordan and, and what happened in the promised land. All right? So very briefly, let me read it and make just a couple comments because we need to go to our next point before we run out of time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites and you dwelt, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. Now listen to who does the action. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Verse 9 and 10. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose up to make war against Israel and called sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. And Balaam wanted money. So he wanted to figure out a way to make the king of Moab happy by cursing Israel. He was trying different things, and God would not listen, and therefore Balaam had to continue to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Even most recently, when we arrived at the Jordan River, and we conquered. God said, I gave you that. Look on 13, 11, 12, 13. When you crossed over, then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Ammonites, the, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, who did what? But I delivered them into your hand. In fact, look what he says in verse 12. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. Do you get the point? Is God being opaque and vague here, or is he being rather clear? I gave you this. In fact, if we haven't caught it, verse 13 rounds up, it summarizes all this quite neatly. I have given you a land for which you did not labor. Cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Our first point, what have we seen? Looking back, Joshua says, we need to look at how God was good to us. He made us a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He saved us into Egypt and out of Egypt. He protected us at the Red Sea and in the wilderness. And he has given us this wonderful land in which we now dwell with the houses we live in and the food we eat. He took care of those who lived here ahead of us. He saved us and gave us. Now, let's talk about application. Before we go into the rest of Joshua's challenge to the people of Israel, 
there are some pretty obvious applications for us. Because God is faithful today. Now, we want to avoid one mistake. It would be easy to say, oh yeah, just like God protected Israel at the Red Sea, he's going to protect us in in tumultuous moments like a sea. And, And just like God protected them in the wilderness, he'll be able to protect us in moments where it's dry and dusty. That's really not the best way to to apply it. It's not false, God does protect, but a more fruitful way to look at this is to ask, why did God do what he did for Israel? All the promises, all the things that he did for Israel were fulfilling his promises to Abraham. I will give you a people, and I will give your people this night, and that is what we've just seen a history of, how God gave Abraham a nation, and gave them the land. Brothers and sisters, what we've just seen is God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Now let's move it to the New Covenant, the New Testament. Has Jesus promised you, if you are in Christ, has Jesus promised you something? Maybe something like eternal life? Just you know, tossing it out there, possibly. Um, heaven? Has he promised to be with you? Has he promised to give you his spirit? Has he failed to do anything he has yet promised? No. And the things that have not yet happened, like Jesus returning, are they going to happen? Yes. As we go into 2023, let's not focus on just the past. Let's focus on what God's done for the church in the past and for Israel in the past and for us in our past, but that's a reminder of his goodness that he will keep his goodness to you and to me as we go into 2023. Whatever path God has for us, the faithful God who keeps his covenant is going to keep it with us in 2023. That is the foundation. That is the the basis on which our path for 2023 must be built. Now, this moves, obviously, in verses 9 to uh, 14 to 16 to an application, really all the way through 18, where Joshua speaks to the people, and he gives them a challenge. And then they respond. So let's look at verses 14 and 15, the challenge first. And then read verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. I don't know if it's shocking to you, but it's shocking to me that after all these great things that God has done, which if we were there, we would say, wow, could you imagine going through the Red Sea? Could you imagine having manna? Could you imagine going through the wars and seeing God do victory after victory, like the walls literally just falling down? We didn't even fight. Don't you think your faith in God would be pretty strong after seeing such amazing evidences? And yet, what does Joshua say? Now, therefore, put what? 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 Is this a, a misprint in the text? Put, put away the gods? They wouldn't have any other foreign gods in their midst. What? How? Could they? They did. Not everybody, but some. And, and Joshua had to call them. You need 
to serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. So let's talk about that, serving the Lord in sincerity and truth. What does this really mean? Well, these two words are similar, but they're not identical in their meaning. Sincerity focuses more on our motive. What's driving us? It really comes from something back in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they built with marble. You know this, at least you do now. So when you're, when you're trying to cut marble out, it's not the easiest thing to do. It's a softer stone, so it can break, but the problem is it's a softer stone and it can break. It doesn't always break where it's supposed to. So you've got this nice column you're building, right? And, and one, one stupid slip of the hammer and chisel, and now you've got a crack where it's not supposed to be. That's an awful lot of money I just wasted, but I got a solution. You know, if you take wax, you can melt it and you can just sort of fill that gap in. You can take some marble dust and rub it on there and sort of polish it in nicely and you can't even see the crack. It is absolutely gone. Well, it's not really gone because the stone's still weak, but it looks good so when you're selling it, it's like selling a car. Oh, the car is great, I just painted it. Underneath is rust, but you can't tell that because, well, that's what, this is what, this waxing. That's what the word sincere actually means. When you're selling this piece of stone, it's without wax, it's sincere. That's how, that's the Latin term, that's what it means. That wax never gets in that marble by accident. It is intentional by someone to steal and cheat and get away with something. Sincere is the opposite of that. What is your motive in serving the Lord? Is it something where you're hiding something? Is it where there's something you just don't want people to know and trying to mask it? Brothers, sisters, that's not sincere. Sincere gets to our motive. You're trying to hide something, pretend to be something you're not, or is this the truth? Serving the Lord with sincerity because he sees the heart. We can, treat, we can trick everybody else here, but we cannot trick the one who sees the heart. Now, that's sincere. Serving the Lord with truth is a different focus. Even though I just said serving the Lord sincerely means serving him in truth, but how it's meant in this phrase, serve the Lord with truth, is talking about according to what God says is true. Because you can be very sincere and be sincerely wrong. It's unfortunate, but it is true. Sincerity is important, but it is not everything. We still need to understand and believe and do what God says. God defines who he is. God defines what true service looks like. It's not what we want it to be. It's not what the majority of people say it is. It's what God says it is. So serving the Lord with sincerity and truth, sincerity focuses on your motive, truth focuses on your adherence to what God says. Isn't it interesting how similar this is to what Jesus said to a Samaritan woman? He said, you worship, you don't know what you worship. We know what we worship. The Father is a spirit, and he seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, worshiping the Lord is one of the ways we serve the Lord. It's not surprising how similar Worshiping, worshiping God in spirit and in truth, serving the Lord sincerely and in truth. There's a lot of similarity there, isn't there? 
God hasn't changed in who he is and what he wants in servers, worshipers. Now, there are two verses in this passage, verse 15 and verse 19, that are confounding. Let me read verse 15, because when you first read it, you think, That's, you can't say that, Joshua. You, you can't give them this option. Here's what he says. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. What? You can't say that. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is Joshua really encouraging them to make a different choice besides God? No, absolutely not. No. In fact, and this isn't reverse psychology, but what he's saying is, I've just talked about how great God is, how he, he chose us, he took us to and from Egypt to save us, he protected us at the Red Sea and in the wilderness, he's given us all this land, he's a great God. That's the one side. On the other side, you've got the gods of Egypt that couldn't defeat God, you got the gods of the Amorites that couldn't defeat God, and you need to make a choice. You can choose the powerful God or, or the useless gods. That's basically how he's presenting it. If, if you don't want to serve the real God who's powerful and good, you can, you can build yourself a broken cistern. You can choose a false crutch. You can choose a make-believe God. I mean, you, you have the choice. My point to you is, guys, you gotta decide, and I'm kind of hoping you make the smart choice. That's what Joshua's actually saying. He's not encouraging them to choose something else. He's presenting it in such a way that it's like, this is a no-brainer. Okay, your whole goal, here's the, here's the test question, and your whole grade depends on the answer. Am I the best teacher you ever had? That's, that's the question the teacher's asking you. And your whole grade is based on yes or no. We all know what the teacher wants to hear. Give him the answer he wants, it's pretty obvious. Well, Joshua's doing the same thing here. He's saying, there's two options here, but one of them is the obvious choice. Now, let's go on to verses 16 through 18. Here's the response of the people. And this is a beautiful response. Nathan, can you imagine? You're preaching and you're giving a challenge and everyone says this. Listen to what they say. So the people answered and said, far be it from us, far be it from us, that we should forsake the Lord to serve the God, other gods. And now they start repeating the very things that Joshua just mentioned to them. For the Lord our God is the one who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage, who did these great signs in our sights and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. I mean, they're just repeating what Joshua just said to them. God has been good to us. Of course we're going to serve the Lord. And the verse 18, they keep going on. Not only was he good to us in protecting us, he was good in what he gave us. Now, the, the last part, verses uh, 8 through 13, he picks that up in verse 18. And the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, including the Amorites, who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Yes, I, I say, can you just imagine Joshua? I like, yes, this is it. Yes, you get it. Okay. And, and we could like end the sermon here. Like, let's go to application, because this is exactly... <coughs> That's exactly what I want us to look at. So application for a second. How do we apply this? Well, it's pretty obvious. We, we would say, I will serve the Lord. I mean, is there anyone here who says, I don't want to serve God in 2023? I, I want to do my own thing? You probably aren't going to admit it. But I want to challenge you with the thing that God challenged them in verse 14. 
as we look at the kind of service that God accepts, if you want to serve your God in 2023, these two words are important, sincerity and truth. Who are you going to be in 2023 when no one else knows and no one else sees? Who are you really? Will you stir the Lord at those moments? Will you take the time to immerse yourself in the truth of who God is? We, we are constantly being bombarded with ideas. If you read anything, watch anything, listen to anything, you are being bombarded with good or bad messages all the time. So we say, of course, yes, I will serve the Lord. Will you do it in truth? Will you take the time in 2023 to let the word of God dwell richly in your thinking? Am I saying you can't read something written by a non-believer? No, I'm not. Am I saying you can't watch something put out by Marvel? No, I'm not. Because some of you would throw things at me if I did. What I am saying is, will you make the time you spend in, with God and in his word more central to your life and what you believe than all the other stuff that is distracting noise? That's what I'm saying. If we don't, we may find our attempts to serve the Lord have been taken off the path because we've forgotten what the path is. It happens very easily. Let's go on because Joshua's response to this in 19 to 25 is a bit confusing. Just like verse 15 was a hard verse, verse 19 is an easy verse to misunderstand. Because they've just said, yes, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua's response is, you can't. And it's, it's not reverse psychology. He's not trying to say, no, I don't think you can do that. Well, do you think you can lift that? Do you think you can put all your toys away? I don't think you can do that in a minute. That is not what Joshua is doing here. He's not trying to manipulate some little kid to get them to do what you want. He's telling them the truth. And what he says in verse 19 is something we rarely hear. We tend to focus on God's love and God's goodness, his grace and his mercy. But let me read verse 19. Because in 19 and 20, Joshua says, it's not easy to serve the Lord. You can't just do this flippantly. It's like when Jesus said, a man who's going to go to war, he should sit down first and consider if with 10,000 he can fight and win a battle against 20,000. And if he can't do it, he should probably try to make peace before the war starts. It's just smart. Or a man who wants to build a tower, maybe he should take his time and count up his coin. Does he have enough money to finish the job, or does he want to get it half done and be looking like a fool? I mean, you need to consider the cost. Jesus said that. You can't just, you can't just follow me. You have to count the cost. Be willing to lay down your life and pick up your cross and follow me. That's what we're seeing in verses 19 and 20. Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. And he explains why. For he is a holy God. Again, he is, second reason, he is a jealous God, which means he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. 
Brothers and sisters, that's a sobering truth. Let's talk about holiness and jealousy for a second. Holiness, when it's talking about God, holiness tends to focus on his character. God is holy. There is no one like him. He is one of a kind. He is unique. He is special, which all means he is worth more than everything else combined because God is the holy one. He alone is unique, especially God. He knows no other. That is holy. It it leads to the great value of who God is in his very nature and character. He is worth more than all of us combined. He's holy. When holiness is applied to God's people, he says, you should be holy because I am holy. He is not saying that we innately have that same worth. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Rather, holiness applied to the people of God is always in this context. Come out from among them and be separate and be holy. Holiness in the sense of divided from, separate from, pulled out from. God is holy and he is special and unique and one of a kind. We are holy when we are taken out of the world and are not of the world. So it's a slight variation of the the meaning of the term. It changes from applying to God to applying to us. And God is holy, has implication on both levels. How we should be holy, set apart for God, and how he is worthy of so much. So because God is holy, should the people of Israel, or we, who bear his name, who say we serve God, the one who is worthy of everything, should we be unfaithful? What consequence do we deserve? To spit on the perfect, unique, and special one of all the universe and to treat him as less than who he is by comparing him to something, an idol we made a bird or a beast or the star, suns or the star or the moon. What consequence do we deserve? Punishment. Because we have taken the only holy special one and treated him like something much less than who he is. Or even replaced him with something much less than who he is. God is holy. You can't just be unfaithful to him. That's what Joshua is saying. Secondly, jealous, and, and this is the one we really don't get. Because In English, in Canada, today, jealousy is a negative, bad thing. But it's not always bad. Sinners, like you and I, often show appropriate jealousy in very sinful ways. So because sinners sin when they have jealousy, doesn't make jealousy innately sin. Yeah, it is. No, no, it's not. God is jealous, and he never sins. Let's talk about what jealousy actually means. Jealousy is a relational term. It has to do with the appropriate expectation between two individuals when they have a special relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes that a man who is married, a husband, does not own his own body. Who owns his body? The wife does not own her body. Who owns her body? That's what God says. Now, we may not like that. I don't want anyone to control me. I control myself. That's not what God says. You enter into a special relationship, a marital relationship. Guess what? You gave up ownership of yourself. Your spouse has ownership of you. 
and you have ownership of him or her. It's reciprocal. Now, we may not like that, but that's what God says the relationship is. So, a husband who is not faithful, she has every right to be jealous of even the appearance of unfaithfulness. A wife who's not faithful, he has every right to be jealous of even the appearance of unfaithfulness. You get the benefits of the relationship, you have obligations in the relationship. It's the same thing with best friends. Hey, you can't have two best friends. You can't. By definition, best friend is best friend. And what happens when three kids are getting together and little Susie says to little Sally, you're my best friend, and little Sarah says, I thought I was your best friend. Oh, you are too. There's jealousy. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You've just taken my relationship and given it to somebody else. There's jealousy. Guys, ladies, that's what God is talking about. Israel. I made you a people. I saved you. I protected you. I have given you. I have earned a relationship with you that none of these others have. And I am jealous for that relationship. That's what he's saying here. I'm a holy God. I'm a jealous God. That's what Joshua is saying about God. And because of his jealousy, he expects the relationship to reciprocally, he is given to them, he expects them to give to him what they owe in their relationship. This is fitting. And if you break it, if you break being the holiness of recognizing God's holiness, or break the jealousy relationship, there are consequences and severe ones. That's what verse 20 explains. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. This is a valid warning. Now, as the passage goes on, 21, 22, 23, uh, 21 and 22, there's a back and forth between Joshua and the people, and they, they say, the people say in verse 21, no, but we will serve the Lord. We, we hear your warning, we recognize the danger if we shouldn't do this Sincerely, but we are sincere. We want to serve the Lord. And Joshua responds to the people, verse 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So we got, you, we will serve the Lord. We are witnesses. If God should ever call a court to evaluate us, we will stand up and admit, we promised we would serve you. That's what they're saying here. Now, goes on in 23, 24, and 25. Joshua says, therefore, put away, this is the third time, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Words can be cheap. If you really mean it, like John the Baptist would say, bring forth fruits of repentance. If you really mean it, make the changes you need to make. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve. His voice, we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with them. That's what verse 25 says. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, made them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. So let's talk about application for a second. What does this have to do with us? Don't we already have a covenant with God in Christ? Yes, yes, we do. 
But the fact of God being holy, the fact of God being jealous has implications. If, If at this point, if at this point you're saying, yes, like Israel, I want to serve you, Lord. Let me, let me challenge you, before you make that final decision, to remember what it is that God is holy. And he's called us, if you are in Christ, he's called you to be holy, set apart from the world. You want to follow the Lord in 2023? You want your path to be the Lord's path for you in 2023? You must remember this. He's called you to be holy, to live in such a way that you adorn our holy God. How much you can be like the world and how much you can be like Christ in 2023? Second, he's a jealous God. If in no other way, even if we don't consider God as their creator who deserves, he's, relationally, he's earned the right just as creator God for all of our worship. But as a believer, if you are trusting in Jesus, he sent his son to die for you, to die for me. He paid a price we could never pay, so we will never have to pay a price in hell that we could never finish paying. If not as creator, Surely as savior, redeemer, God has earned a relational right to be jealous and to demand our response. So before you decide, yes, I will serve the Lord, he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. In this year, do you want to live a life that makes him look good? Do you want to live a life that recognizes your relational, contractual obligations because of what Christ has done on the cross for you. Let's, let's finish the sermon. Joshua concludes 26 to 28. He says, guys, you've made this great claim. We've written a covenant. And I just, I want to make it memorialized. So if we go to 26 to 28, let me read the verses. Verse 26, Joshua wrote these things these words in the book of the law of God. Now, what he's probably talking about, we can go to the next screen. What he's probably talking about is actually the book of Joshua that we have in front of us. Because the book of the law at this point was Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we actually have a reference here in the passage to the fact that Joshua wrote some more words and wrote down what they promised, which is what we just read. So the first thing, a written, a written summary of their promises so, so that forever, this generation and further generations could look back and say, here's what was promised. The second thing, and, and they do this sometimes in Israel, they're going to talk to a stone, which kind of seems strange to us. But there's two reasons they use a stone. One, big marshmallows just don't endure. And if you talk your words in front of a big marshmallow, well, the rain's going to dissolve it and the ants will come and they take it away. So marshmallows don't endure. But stones, stones stick around for a while. So they're a good memorial, not just today, but in a hundred years, a thousand years, and dare I say two thousand years. Sometimes stones are still there. They don't wear away quickly. So this stone that they're going to talk to and read in front of 
is there as a witness. So verse 26 and 27, he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Now before I go on, the position of this big stone is right by an oak tree, right near the entrance to the tabernacle. So you don't stay in the tabernacle. If you're gonna go to the tabernacle and bring uh, a sacrifice, on the way there you might wanna stop and freshen up, and you probably do that under the oak that has shade in a hot land, and under the oak or near the oak is this stone that's a witness. Before I go into the tabernacle, I'm gonna see the stone and remember my covenant, and if I've got some things I need to change, maybe I'm gonna make some changes before I bring my sacrifice. Makes sense. It, it's not that different than what we do sometimes at the communion table, that we examine ourselves before we participate. God knows what he's doing. This stone is there to be a reminder. Verse 27 explains that Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny the Lord. His purpose is to keep you from denying the Lord, is to keep you remembering the words you've, you've made here, this promise you've made here. And after Joshua explained that, he let the people go into part, each to his own inheritance. Well, let's, let's conclude with this final point of application. If, as you've been listening to God's word, you're saying, yeah, I need to make some changes. 2023 needs to be better than 2022. I want to serve you, Lord. I want my path to be your path for me. If that's what you're saying today, then here's some very helpful things to do. One, write down your commitment. When you go home today, take a piece of paper, write it down. Today, Lord, and for 2023, this is what I want. You can make it your New Year's resolution if you want. Second thing is talk to somebody. Someone that you can trust. Somebody you can pray with. Say, listen, God challenged me, and I want to make this change. Don't have to go into the details, but say, there's, a, there's something I want to do in 2023. Will you pray with me? Will you hold me accountable? Will you ask me, hey, how's it going? You don't even need to know the specifics to ask, how are you doing? Are you serious about wanting to live for God in 2023? Do better than you did last year. I'd like to ask you all to stand, if you're able. Father, you know our hearts. Of all who are standing, some may be saying yes, sincerely and in truth, I wanna worship my holy and my jealous God. Maybe some aren't ready, but Father, I pray that you would be working and you would help us in this new year to serve you, that the path we take in 2023 would be your path, that we give you honor, and that we would delight in you and be a delight to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.